John tells us in John chapter 20 and verses 20 and 30 and 31 what his intention was for writing his gospel account, his good news account of the Lord Jesus Christ and his life. And he said that he picks out certain signs uh, that would testify to the reality of who Jesus really is. And verse 31 in John chapter 20 says this, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's purpose for having written what he did was so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. Now that comes towards the end of his, uh, his gospel account. And he's telling us at that point that I've brought before you various witnesses to give their testimony. These people that come with their witness statements, I've selected some of them that will help to convince you of who Jesus is. That Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God and that changes everything. Uh, today we're going to be reading in John chapter 1. And it's almost as if we're in a courtroom and called to the witness stand is a man called John. And it's not John who wrote the, uh, the gospel account. It's another John. It's John the Baptist, as he's known. So it's almost as if he's called up to the front and we're to listen to his <coughs> witness statement about who Jesus is. Now, if we were part of a jury... It's our responsibility to listen very carefully to the witness statement. And then after that, put it all together to arrive at a conclusion. And that's what God encourages us through his word, to see what his word says about him. And then with his help, to come to the right conclusion as to who he is and who Jesus is, particularly as we read in this. Now, we're going to read the whole passage in John chapter 1, uh, verses 19 through to 34. Because this is what John the Apostle, writing 50 or so years after the incidents have occurred, is telling us. And here we have John the Baptist being brought forward as a witness. So let's read John chapter 1, verses 19 through to 34 together. I'm reading from the New International Version, translation of the Scriptures. Verse 19 says, Now this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who'd been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptise with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of Jordan where John was baptising. The next day, 
John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Do you see how many times John in his recounting of this incident that involves John the Baptist uses the word testifying or witnessing. Here we have this man who has this encounter with Jesus and John is sharing it with us so that we might know who Jesus is. John the Baptist just suddenly appears into history. Now we have three other gospel accounts that tell us more about John the Baptist and his life and he appeared preaching about the soon coming kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God in its fullness. It's what the Jewish people were waiting for. They had in their minds that the kingdom of God was coming when it would be an earth-based kingdom with a great one that God would raise up who would be seated on the throne and Israel would be the greatest of all nations. And particularly at this time, Uh, when they were under the oppression of the Romans, they they were longing for this. And here comes John the Baptist, and he appears preaching about the kingdom of God. And he said to the Jews, and you can read about this in Matthew 3 and in Mark 1 and in Luke chapter 3, he says, you need to be ready. And he was preaching to the Jewish people, the people to whom God had made all the promises about this great coming kingdom and the king associated with the kingdom. He says, you need to be ready, and that requires you to repent of your sins. To trust yourselves, again, to live God's way. And to demonstrate the reality of that trust in God and your turning away from sin in life change. Because we're told in the other accounts that people came and said, well, what does this look like? And so people would repent of their sins and he would baptize them in water, which was a symbolic thing. Uh, indicating that they had renounced their sinful ways, they were coming back to trust in God and that was going to make a difference in the way they lived. And people asked, well, what does it look like? And John gave them an answer. We don't have the time to spend on that. But here was John coming and preparing the people for something great that was anticipated, that people would be ready for it and that their lives would be changed in anticipation of it. Now, what's remarkable is that people were flocking to John. Now it wasn't that John was uh, preaching in Jerusalem which is where all of the religious uh, system was based for the Jews. That was the centre focus. It wasn't there at all. It was out in a wilderness place by the Jordan. Some commentators say it might have been the very place where Joshua brought in the people of Israel to start their possession of the promised land. So there was something symbolic even about the place where John the Baptist was doing his preaching. It's out in the wilderness. Now you don't normally find a lot of people out in the wilderness. Uh, But people were flocking to him. He was causing a stir. Maybe because he was a bit of an oddity. The other gospel accounts tell us that 
Uh, he wore camel's hair clothes. Can you imagine the itchiness of that? And he was eating locusts and wild honey. Not only that, he was a bit peculiar to look at, but his preaching was really confrontational because he didn't hold back. He said, you need to repent. And when religious leaders came to him, he accused them, he called them a brood of vipers. He called them snakes. But yet this was attractive to people. Now, how was it attractive? It must have been by word of mouth. Because they didn't have Twitter and, and so on to pass this around in these days. So you would have had this thing that started with this man off in the wilderness area. Away from Jerusalem. And word of mouth starts. And it says crowds were coming out from Jerusalem and from Judea around Jerusalem. To listen to John. And not only that, people were responding. People were confessing their sins and being baptised. Here was a man who came with the truth of God. And it changed people's lives. In Matthew chapter 3 and in Mark chapter 1, we have that statement. The people confessing their sins were baptised. Here was a major spiritual revival or an awakening. To use language that we would use today. And it was happening in a place that was removed from where the temple was. The place where you would expect that sort of thing to happen. So what we're told here is that the Jews, and when John uses the word Jews in his uh, gospel account, have this in mind. He's usually using it to describe the religious leaders who were antagonistic towards Jesus. You see that all the way, all the way through. It says the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. It's a description of those who were anti-Jesus, the religious leadership. Now, they're troubled by this spiritual awakening and revival that's happening among the people. And people are going away from the temple and they're going out into the wilderness. So what do they do? They send a delegation out. Let, let's go find out who this guy thinks he is. So what we're told here is that there was a delegation come out. And it was priests and Levites that were, were told came first to John. And they, they said, so who are you? I think there was a bit of a snare in it, wasn't there? Who do you think you are anyway? Now we're told from Luke chapter 1 that John, he was like a miracle boy born to really old parents. His dad, Zachariah, was a priest. So therefore he was somebody who would have been born into the priestly and Levitical, Levites, part of the, the priestly service order. He would have been born into that. But it doesn't seem as though he'd gone through the usual training that would have been associated with the priest. And it might have been because his parents were so old they died soon after he was born. Now that's pure speculation. But maybe John grew up in a, in a different environment than the temple uh, service system. And they said, well, so who do you think you are? And here was a man who was not putting himself and he was not acting as part of the priestly order, although he had the credentials to do so, he wasn't doing it. He was off doing something different, and people were flocking to him. What right did he have to start preaching? Whenever there was this whole system of people associated with God's service in Jerusalem, what right did he have? You have these heightened expectations in Israel and amongst the leadership and amongst the general population. God has been silent for 450 years. The last that God has spoken through a prophet is in the prophet Malachi, as we have it at the end of the Old Testament. It's been silence. Israel has been through it, 
Under the, the Maccabees, they've, they've known some resurgence and they've taken the temple back from those that came in and destroyed it. And then the Romans come in, they just obliterate everything again. They don't destroy the temple, but they just oppress the nation. And you have this nation who has been promised by God that they're special to him. And that God is going to do something wonderful with them and through them. And they're waiting for this Messiah figure. Uh, the Messiah is an anointed one who would come and be this great champion who would bring victory and freedom to God's people. So there's this anticipation. And these people might have been wondering, is John actually the Messiah? Because he's doing this uh, uh, in a different place than where we might expect it. Do you notice what um, John says? He did not fail to confess, but confess, verse 20, I am not the Messiah. Here was John starting something that's very important for us to know as well. We need to know who we're not. When, when we're living our lives, let's not kid ourselves that we're somebody we're not. Here was John who wasn't getting above himself. He says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not this anointed one. This prophesied liberator of Israel. I am not him. And then they said, well, are you Elijah? Now, the reason for Elijah was because at the end of the, the book of Malachi, there had been this promise that Elijah would come before the Lord himself would come. And the Lord coming was associated with the, um, this establishing in grand eternal scale of the kingdom of God. And they thought because Elijah was taken up to heaven uh, in a whirlwind and... There's the image of the chariots of fire and all that's associated with that. They were thinking, well, because he didn't die, he was taken up to heaven, then Elijah's going to come back. So they're thinking, this man in camel's hair, eating locusts and so on, who's not dissimilar to how Elijah was, he seems like a rough old prophet. Is, is John Elijah? And he, no, I'm not Elijah. And then they say, are you the prophet? I'm not the prophet. Well, who's the prophet? That takes us back to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 18, where Moses said to the people of Israel, he says, look, God said through him, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, Moses, and I'm going to put his words, my words in his mouth, and he's going to give them to the people, and the people are going to listen. And I will hold to account everyone who hears the words that are spoken by the prophet. So there was this figure that was being expected by the Jewish people this prophet figure, like Moses. Now Moses was, was almost uh, the key man in terms of th their whole religious structure and system because he was the one through whom God had given all of the instructions of the Ten Commandments, the 613 laws in total. And he was the one who'd given the instructions about uh, initially tabernacle service that then became temple worship. And we have all of that. So Moses was... A highly regarded man, but then Moses had said, God's told me that he's going to raise up a prophet like me, he's going to be greater than me. And here's John the Baptist saying, No, nope, I'm not him. In life, it's important to know who we're not. But he does know who he is. Look there at uh, what he, he does say. He says, Well, Verse 22, well, finally, they said to him, who, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied, verse 23, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Here was a man 
who most likely knew that his birth was something extraordinary. <coughs> now, if you go back into Luke chapter 1, you'll hear that when the angel of the Lord spoke to his father, Zechariah, he said, your son is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. He will bring many of the people of Israel back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now that was linking in with Old Testament prophecies. So maybe Zechariah had sat down with John when he was a, when he was a wee lad and said to him, look, this, this is what happened. We weren't able to have a child by normal means, but God gave us you. And he said that you were going to come and prepare the way. Now in Isaiah it says this, and here was John himself, probably having taken hold of this statement that had been given by the angel to his father, here he is himself, not just going, well, my dad says this. He says, no, this is who I am. Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Here is a man who knows who he's not, but then knows who he is. And he knows who he is, how? Maybe it was through his father, but he gets the answer to who he is in life and his purpose in life through God's word. Now, for those of us that are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're wondering, well, what's my calling in life? We're going to find the answer in God's word. Not through uh, the gurus of this world in their various forms who will tell us, uh, you just be yourself and that's all good. God has a purpose for us. Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10 tell us this. By grace we have been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. We can't boast about our salvation. But it says that we've been created in Christ Jesus. We are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. That we might do the good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. That's verse 10 of Ephesians 2. So God calls people to himself for salvation through Christ. To then give us fulfilment in life and purpose. And we find what that will be in here. Now you might say, well, I, God hasn't shown me from here that I should be like John the Baptist. It's not for everybody. But God gives instruction in his word about how we're to live every single day. And that's to live a holy life. A life that's set apart to God's things and not to the things of this world. And that distinctive life will be an attraction to some, but it will be repulsive to others. Paul spoke himself about being an aroma of Christ. For some it was the aroma of life and for others it was the aroma of death. Knowing who we're not, they'll make sure that we can live out who we are. And God might be calling some of us to what might be considered by the world to great things. But actually in the kingdom of God as Jesus teaches, it's not the greatest that has the, the prominent place, it's the lowest. And we're getting here the same place with John the Baptist. Did you notice also in verse 24 that Pharisees are in this delegation? So not only you've got the priests and the Levites, now they're, they're part of the group called the Sadducees. Jesus didn't spend much time with the Sadducees because we're told that they didn't believe in the resurrection. Jesus spent most of his time interacting with the Pharisees. But here you have the Pharisees coming in and they're like, well, why then are you baptizing? So you're doing this so why are you doing this if you're not any of the people that uh, the other guys who were just about getting on with, they, they weren't best mates, um, what they've been asking you about. 
And John gives them clear answers. I baptize with water. It's a simple thing. And I'm doing it. And, but then he very quickly switches. Do you see in verse 26 and 27? He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. So John was like, yeah, my baptism is important, but it's not as important as the one who's among you whom you don't yet know. Now, there's not only a man who knows his calling from God, but also knows his place in God's purposes. And here he is saying, look, my baptism is important, but it's not as important as the one that's actually among you right now. And what I'm doing is preparing the way for him to come. Now, the Pharisees, they were sort of lay people, um, teachers and preachers of the law, associated with the synagogues and such like. And they would have been engaged in a form of baptism for people who were not ethnic uh, Jews, who wanted to subscribe to the covenant agreements that God had made with Israel through Moses uh, and to live a life as if they were Jewish. They're known as proselytes, converts to Judaism. And if somebody said, well, we want to be... Uh, we want to be like you Jews. We want to live according to God's ways. Then the Pharisees in the local setting, in their synagogues, in the towns, in the cities, they would have been engaged in, in a form of baptism that would indicate this person was saying, we're not having anything more to do with our old way of pagan life. We want to live like you Jews. But it was all for people who were not Jews. What was John's baptism all about? Specifically to Jewish people. Preparing the way of the Lord for those who had received from God. All of the promises from God that were contained in what we have as our Old Testament. And it shows us that even when you have something, you might not realise what it is you have. But here, John has come that people might repent. They would confess their sins. This symbolic cleansing act, in a sense. Then to go on, waiting for this coming one and the coming kingdom of God. So John is clear. He's come to prepare the way for a greater one who's coming after him. Now do you notice when he quoted Isaiah 40 verse 3. He says I've come to prepare the way for the Lord. Now in the Old Testament, Isaiah 40 verse 3. The Lord there is Lord in capital letters. Which is Yahweh. The great God who makes a loving covenant with his people, whose name was so revered that they would quite often not speak it and they might not write it down. Here was John knowing in his purpose that he had come before one who was none other than God himself. But to hear what John had grasped, he says, I have come to prepare the way for God, but he's standing right among you and you don't know him. Here's John who's been brought into an understanding that the promised one, this great Messiah figure, was not just a great man who would be endowed by God's greatness to bring about victory, but it was actually God himself, who was holy and above all that had been created, who was actually there in the form of a man. That's astounding. He says, my baptizing is not about me, it's about the one coming after me. John the Baptist was pointing off to this one that they didn't know. You be ready for him, because when he comes, you need to be ready. 
what did he say? He says, I'm not even worthy to undo the latches on his sandals. Now, if you went into somebody's house in those days in, in Israel, you're an invited guest. It was the lowest of the slaves who would take your shoes off. It was just a thing of status. Here was John saying, I, I am, he is so great that, that I wouldn't even touch his feet. Now, what we've not been told just yet is that John has already met this one. And he's already had it confirmed to him that Jesus is this great one, the God of eternity, who has stepped into time and space here that he might be the Savior. In verse 30, just jumping down a little bit, he spoke and he said, look, this one has surpassed me. He's much greater than me because he was before me. So here he has a knowledge that this one was before him. Now, if you do a little bit of maths in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, you'll know that uh, John the Baptist, the miracle birth of him, he was at least six months older than Jesus, who was also born of a miracle birth. So here was John saying, that uh, I actually know Jesus. And because his mothers, because both mothers were relatives, most likely they'd, they'd had some interaction in their growing up years. John knew he was older than Jesus. But here he's saying that this one has surpassed me because he was before me. He's pointing to the eternal credentials of this man who's standing. And he says, you guys don't know him. And actually, while I knew Jesus, I didn't know him for who he really is until it was shown to me. That brings us to verse 29. It says, the next day... After this, and let's not miss verse 28, John being very careful and said, look, this all happened in Bethany beyond Jordan. If you want in a witness statement with uh, circumstances and circumstantial evidence alongside it, here's John saying, look, we can testify where this happened and how this happened. Um, but verse 29 says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We then read the next section where John says, I was told by the one who sent me. So he had an interaction with God who had sent him. In answering Isaiah 40 verse 3, he says, I, I, I've been told that whenever I baptize someone and the Spirit of God would make himself visible and would come down and remain on him, this one is God's chosen one. Now that had happened sometime before this incident. Maybe some people say about a week before. Here was John pointing him out. Having come into this full knowledge of who Jesus really was. They've, they've maybe spent 30 years together as they've grown up. And here is boom. Jesus is God. Look. The Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. Now that statement that God had given to John the Baptist about the Spirit coming and resting on him, that links with Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah as well. That there would be this great one who would come and the Spirit of the Lord would be on him and he would go forward in that strength. And, and here John has seen that for himself. <coughs> He's baptised Jesus and the Holy Spirit has appeared. And that's the clincher for him. God has said, this is going to happen. And when it happens, Jesus, he is God's son. What was in John's mind when he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? For those of us who know our Bibles, we automatically think 
Oh yes, well, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who takes away our sins. But maybe that had not yet been fully understood. Because you remember when Jesus was telling his disciples, I have to be killed and then I'll be raised on the third day. Peter says, that will never happen to you. They didn't have really a full grasp of this great Messiah figure being killed and then and suffering and being killed. So maybe, just go with me on this. Maybe John had in his mind the Lamb of God, like the Lamb associated with the Passover, the great Exodus experience of Israel under Moses. When the blood was put around the doors and they were saved from God's judgment and they went out as a people. Maybe he had that in mind. So there was some, something of a substitutionary aspect to the Lamb of God. One who, the blood was from a dead animal to bring about this new exodus. Maybe he was thinking of that. Maybe he was thinking about the lambs of the sheep and the goats that would have been sacrificed through the sacrificial system for sin and for guilt. And we read about those in Leviticus. Or maybe he had in his mind, if he was well conversant with Isaiah, which it seems he was, Isaiah 53 verse 7, it speaks about this promised servant coming. He says he's led like a lamb to the slaughter. Did John have that in mind? Maybe he did, but maybe he didn't. Think about it this way, just for a moment. And John says, look, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember, he's come and he's been preaching repentance because this kingdom that God has promised in all of its fullness is coming. And if you don't repent, you have no place in it and you will suffer the judgment of God. Did he have in mind, look, here's the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sin of the world. And if you've not repented, you be careful because you might be taken away. You thought about it in that way, possibly. Here was John in his very confrontational preaching, might have had that in mind. But for us, and for John the Apostle who was writing this, 50 years later, we know the full significance. Whatever John the Baptist might have thought, we know the fullness of what he was speaking about. Here was one who would be the sacrificial lamb of God, who would be the one who would willingly give himself to die his blood to be the covering for those who would hide under him from God's judgment and say I'm I'm with Christ I can't save myself from from you God but Jesus he's done it on my behalf and yes you've promised that Jesus is going to be the great judge and he will remove all those who have not acknowledged their sin and receive forgiveness from you we see all of that John quoted Isaiah 40 verse 3 in relation to his, his purpose and his calling. It goes on to say in verse 5 of Isaiah 40, he says, And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. Here was John saying, look, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That doesn't mean that everybody's sin is removed. John the Apostle is is very careful about how he uses the word world throughout his writings. Here it just means that people from every nation on earth will be saved through this Lamb of God. This great conquering Lamb as we see him in the book of Revelation. The conquering Lamb who has defeated death. Who has been the sacrifice on behalf of sinners for their sin. Who has given himself to die on the cross. John, when he's writing one of his letters, John the Apostle, 
1 John 3 verse 5 says this, We know that he appeared, Jesus, God the Son, as Jesus. He appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. That's how Jesus could be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, the sin of the world. It's because he himself was the only person who has lived who was without sin. The only person who was not guilty of things before God, who honoured God absolutely in everything. And he lived that life for those who would trust in him. And he would die the death that was deserving of those people in their unrighteousness and say, you can have my righteousness. And that's what Paul tells us about in the book of Corinthians. He says that God's righteousness is counted to our account when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's because he's the perfect sinless man who also is God. We need to conclude then with what John says that he's then going to do, which is even greater than the baptism in water that was associated with repentance that John the Baptist did. Verse 33 says, He will baptise with or in the Holy Spirit. Here was something amazing. This is another step in this unfolding of God's purposes. God had promised in Isaiah 44 and Ezekiel 36 and Joel 2, He says, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on all mankind. And here was John saying, this one whom you don't know, but I can now point to you as being the one who has been sent by God to be the rescuer of sinners. He is the one who will then bring God's Holy Spirit to you. He will baptize with or in the Holy Spirit. So as John was baptizing in water, as representative cleansing for sin, must say it here, that's not the same as the baptism that we would apply today for believers in the Lord Jesus. That represents what has happened spiritually in someone. But John's was a baptism of repentance, a physical act that was demonstrating a turning away from sin. But here John was saying, I baptize in water, but the one coming after me is greater, and he's greater because actually you can know yourself absolutely immersed in who God is. God the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of God the Holy Spirit coming and being on people for a period of time and then going. It's interesting that God said to John the Baptist, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. He's the one. And then John says, we can have the same experience. The Holy Spirit, through Jesus, through faith in him, he's the one who will take us. And when we say, Jesus, we want to be with you because you are the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, he takes us. And there's this spiritual baptism into life, into the Holy Spirit. And we're immersed in the things of God. That's, that's a remarkable thing. Now we can see that because of, of what we understand of the fullness of Scripture. Now this was all really interesting for the Jews who knew their Old Testaments and the promises that were coming. We're told in 1 Corinthians 10 that Baptism also is a symbol of identification with someone. So John's, John the Baptist's disciples were identifying with him and his teaching. Jesus is described as the Son of God, the Lamb of God who was going to come and was going to baptise in God, the Holy Spirit. And people who would experience that were identifying themselves with God, with Jesus as their captain. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1. Paul there says, look up. 
Jewish ancestors, they were baptised into Moses as their leader. So here John is saying, Look, I, I'm nothing. The one coming after me has been before me. I'm not even worthy to touch his feet. I know my place. And I know my calling is to make the way ready for him. Now will you listen? And he's coming. And he's, he's able to take away sin. He's the one who actually is the answer to what I've been preaching about. Because I can't take away your sin. Only God can do that. But here is one among you who can take away your sin. It's Jesus. Identify yourself with him now. And as we'll see in the next installment, he points John's own, John the Baptist's own disciples. He says, you go after him now. It's not about me. What, what do we have in this for us? There's no one greater than Jesus. He's the Lamb of God to take away sin. Nobody on this earth has the authority to say to us, your sins are forgiven. Knowing Jesus brings salvation. And that brings us in to the fullness of a life that always should point off to him. That's what we have in John the Baptist. What do we get from this? Did we have this understanding of the, the fearful judgment of God against sin? That's there in John's preaching. And then he says that this one is the only means of salvation. Bad news gives us the good news. And whatever our place in life, I hope we're realising from this that we see that it's not about us. Actually, life is all about living for God. And there's a certain excitement and maybe even fear about seeing our place in God's plan. So what are we going to do about it? I, I'm hoping that we're all trusting in who Jesus, the Lamb of God, is. That he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing we have life in his name. We're going to respond to John's preaching, to Jesus' words, to my preaching even, that as sinners we can do nothing for ourselves, but we trust in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what about then this matter of being baptised? Yes, Jesus, it says, baptises in the Holy Spirit. That's for all believers. But the Bible goes on to teach us that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are to show what has happened to them actually through the physical act of water baptism. And then it goes on to saying to be committed to a local church of God as they're described in the New Testament. People together serving. What for themselves? No. Pointing off to Jesus always. I think the lesson that we can get, some of the lessons we can get from John is that he knew, he knew who he was not. He knew who he was. He knew his calling. He found that in God's word and he went after it and it pointed off to Jesus. Maybe that's for us today as well. Trusting in who Jesus is brings us into the reality of knowing that we're not him. We're no saviour in ourselves, but he is. And we can point other people to him. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray.